Hello lovelies, I'm Glyn Fussell and welcome to We Can Be Heroes. I am emitting an aura of hope to bring you stories from people who have achieved all types of inspirational wonder. From pushing the boundaries of what is humanly possible to changing the way we see other people, come with me on a journey of discovery to find out what makes these individuals my heroes and I guarantee they will be yours too. Today's hero comes top to toe in practical, yet gorge, outdoor clothing. Look inside, however, and you will see a boldness and a drive that has taken her to quite literally great heights. Whatever is your thing, I think take it to the extreme because that's where the magic happens. Squash Faulkner is a self-confessed adventure addict. She is so passionate about the outdoors that she has pushed her physical, mental and emotional strength to the absolute limits. In 2011, she became the queen of the climbing world and summited the highest mountain on the globe, Mount Everest. You might have heard of it. Prior to this, she was the first British woman to launch a paraglider off the summit of Mont Blanc. Sounds crazy to me. She also casually did this, motorbiking all the way from England to the foot of the mountain. I want to ride a motorbike to the foot of Mont Blanc. When I get there, I want to climb it, and then I want to fly off the top. I want to find out what makes people like squash, want to put themselves in, let's face it, grave danger, to achieve something that, as humans, we were probably not designed to do. I want to start with your name. I'm sure you get asked this so much. I mean, going through school just by being called Glyn, I was tortured. <laughs> and then I came out as a giant homosexual, and that really added to it. But <laughs> where did the name Squash come from? So basically, I was christened Louise, but my sister, who was 15 months older, couldn't say that. So she called me E's, then P's, then Squashy P's. And then very quickly, it became Squash. And then everybody called me Squash. So as far as I was concerned, that was my name. So when anyone asked me my name, I said, it's Squash. And it just carried on through school, work, life, everything. And I realised as I got older that actually, although people had a bit of a strange reaction to it at first, it only ever did me favours because it was a conversation starter. And I just liked it. It was my name. It is my name. It's a superhero's name, basically. So (laughs) there you go. I'm not sure about that. Squash, I have spent my entire life, me and my boyfriend, saying, let's climb a mountain. Let's let's swim to that island over there. But what happens is we always sit down and order a pina colada and it never quite happens. <laughs> so how do you think someone uh, with the desire, you know, to to pursue adventure, how do you take that next step? How do you get there and go, oh, no, I'm going to do it? I think it's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because I think for, for a long time, you know, I was never going to climb Everest. It wasn't really the plan. I didn't, I didn't know how people climbed Everest. And I think that saying, you know, if you can see it, you can be it. And I think what happened with me is I saw things and I saw people doing things. And then I had friends that were doing things. And I was like, oh, maybe I could do that. And actually with the mountains, it began because a group of friends were talking about going to climb Aconcagua. It's um, one of the seven summits. It's a um, 7,000 metre peak in South America. And they were talking about it and I was around at their house and I said, oh, I'd love to do something like that. And they said, why don't you come with us? And I was like, uh, okay then, yeah. Why don't I come with you? And and because they were doing it and I trusted them and I knew that they knew me and they knew my physical capabilities, although I hadn't got the experience, they knew what I was capable of. So I think that's the real difference, seeing it and believing that you can because you're going to get shown the way and it kind of unfolds in front of you, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I guess you still need to have certain physical and mental attributes to be able to do it. And what do you think those are? I think a lot of it is confidence, you know, and 
I think as you're growing up, you don't necessarily know how confident you are or not because you're not out in the world and you haven't got other people to gauge it against. But I had amazing parents and an incredibly strong family and I grew up on a farm and I think that there was a lot of confidence instilled in me. I think I was exposed to a lot of experience as well. It wasn't like it was a perfect family life. There was a lot of issues and ongoing family battles, I suppose, and and different things and my parents got divorced. So I saw a lot of things and my mum and dad didn't really hide it from me, which I think is a good thing. They were very honest. But what they did with that as well was they kind of always reassured me that I was loved. So I was always secure. And I think that was the key thing. I was always loved unconditionally and I was just shown things. I was shown the truth. Amazing. I think truth and honesty and guidance comes in so many different forms. Those lessons, have you given those to younger adventurers and people wanting to follow in your footsteps? I mean, that's something that I think about a lot, especially now I'm more aware, now I'm older and I've I've reflected on on myself. And I think, you know, when I've had the opportunity to do school talks and and be approached by younger people, yeah, I've absolutely tried to instill that confidence and tell people that they are capable of anything and they can find a way and that there is something for them and yeah massively since having my daughter Kit I think about it all the time because I absolutely want her to have that so I I think to myself how did I get that and how can I do that and and it's not something you can necessarily force I think it to a degree it has to come naturally and a lot of that I think is about letting go I think you have to let go and let people get on with it themselves and I think that's difficult for parents you know my parents didn't control me they didn't try and tell me what to do they didn't push me into anything they simply said whatever you want to do is fine we love you you know obviously make the right choices and we'll be there to pick up the pieces if it goes wrong and we'll be there to shout and cheer if it goes well so that's what I'd love to do for my daughter and what I hope I can do for anybody, you know, young or old. If anybody comes to listen to me speak, I suppose the biggest gift that I'd like to give them is for them to walk away and not think, well, that was cool or she was cool, but to think, wow, I'm capable of anything. I could do that. So how can people do it? How can they act on that sense of adventure in their day-to-day life? I think you have to do Like you have to get up and you have to do stuff. It's not going to happen by sitting down, looking at a computer screen, watching a TV programme, reading a book. Whilst they're all good things, I think physically and mentally and emotionally, you have to get yourself out into the environment. So even with bad weather, with my daughter, I've got all the excuses to stay in the house. Every single day we're outside for at least two hours. And even if I don't want to go, even if it's the hardest thing in the world to drag myself up and out, I just know that... I'll feel fantastic afterwards and during will be fine. Like I'll, I'll get on with it. So I think it's about motivating yourself. Like even if it's just, if you're somebody that doesn't get out and about very much, you've not had much fresh air, you're not motivated at the moment, you don't know what to do. Make yourself go out for a walk three times a week for an hour. Like build it into your habits. Make yourself go, notice how you feel afterwards. And it honestly, it just grows from there. But it, it's cheesy and everything, but every journey starts with the first step. So you taking a step out your front door is no different to me starting my journey to Everest. Well, I'm climbing Everest. I'm doing it. That's it then. I'm in squash. I'm booking it as we speak on my uh, other yeah, other yeah, you are, you phone are, down you here. Are. Yeah. You were talking about your daughter. Does obviously being a mother is, I think, you know, I'm surrounded by amazing mothers and amazing women in my life. And that for me feels like the scariest job. That's the scariest mountain to climb. Yeah, without a doubt. Like Everest, a walk in the park compared, honestly, everything I've done, you can just just forget it compared to parents. I know. And I look at, you know, loved ones. It's only when your sister or your best friend has a child 
and you think, God, women have done this since the beginning of time. This is how the planet works. And yet it blows my mind every time I look mm. at a woman growing a baby in them and I think, how is this happening? How is this? Mm. It's unbelievable. It really is unbelievable. It's amazing, isn't but it? But does it make you, you know, now you've got the responsibility of parenthood, does it make you attack adventure, real life adventure differently with more caution maybe? Yeah, for sure. I think... I think attack is a word I wouldn't use anyway, even previously. I, I never sort of had that attitude towards it. I went out and did it because I was having fun and enjoying myself. You know, sometimes people say, oh, you take crazy risks. I would argue that I'm, I'm not that person that takes crazy risks because actually I prepare for it, I plan for it. And, you know, I'm a paraglider pilot, for example. I don't just think, yeah, I'll just throw myself off the side of this mountain. I stand there and I'm looking at the weather conditions. I've trained, I've learnt, and I'm the first one not to take off if it's not right. Do you know what I mean? I don't want to hurt myself doing any of these things. My biggest goal when I set off to climb a mountain is to come back safely. So sometimes I don't even summit and that's fine. I'm naturally drawn towards going out there and doing things. So I think that part of my personality hasn't changed. It's just, it's modified along the way, which it does all your life, depending on the stage you're at. And certainly having my daughter Kit, you know, the very first time I left her and went outside by myself to do a ski run, she wasn't very old. And I'd left her in the house with my mum and I was away for maybe half an hour and I couldn't believe how vulnerable I felt and how little risk I wanted to take. I saw risks that I'd never seen before. I thought, what if somebody skis into me? What if this happens? What if that happens? And I think it's because, you know, I knew that I had to be intact because somebody was so dependent on me. And she's just over two now. So I think as she's got older, that's definitely reduced. You know, I don't feel quite as vulnerable. I have massive respect for women that get back out there and do things straight away. But if you ask me if I wanted to go on an expedition right now, absolutely not. I have got no desire to leave my daughter. I mean, I've actually never left her for a single night. I want to be here and present and I want to be there for her. And as she gets older, that will probably change. I mean, I'm not saying I'll do things like Everest again. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. But I did Everest when I was 30. And part of the thought process was I don't have any responsibility. I don't have children I wasn't in a relationship and I thought this is the time because it's quite it is quite a selfish thing to do you know like the sports that I do and and you have to be selfish to be focused and to you know to keep yourself safe I think and to prepare well but it is selfish and yeah I think for now it's definitely changed because I want it to and I want to keep myself well to keep her well but I'm sure as she gets older we'll do more together and and it'll pick up again. Well you're talking about the amazing women but when I, and I mean, maybe I'm, this is quite naive of me, but when I look at the, the world of adventure and exploration, it does seem like a very male-dominated world. Have you experienced sexism from your peers or from people around you that are doing the same? Yes. It was something that I didn't really notice too much. When people used to ask me about it, I used to say, no, no, it's all fine and there's plenty of women in adventure. But the fact was I hadn't noticed. And then when I actually started to look, I was like, actually, I'm on a mountain expedition, there's two women and 19 men. And one of the first things a Polish guy on the team said to me on this particular mountain, we were climbing Chawoyu, was, you don't look like you can climb a mountain. I was quite shocked because it was in front of the whole group and I just smiled and I just didn't know what to say. And afterwards I was like, wow, I can't believe he just said that to me. Anyway, he didn't summit the mountain and I did and that was enough really I just smiled at him at the end and was like well you know it's not it's not what we look like but I'm lucky in that it hasn't stopped me but I can absolutely see how it would intimidate other women and I think it's 
it's really important that we are aware of it and it's addressed. And then I also think there's plenty of men who are wonderful, who encourage women, who want to see it, you know, more equal and everything. And I just think it's really important that they're celebrated and talked about just as much. When I think about any sense of adventure, especially some of the things you've done, my instant thing is to go to fear. How do you overcome that fear? How do you look at it? And what is the process, I guess, of going, right, I'm scared of that, but I've got to do it or I want to do it. So what is your process? So fear is a, is a really interesting thing. And I think we all too often associate it with stopping us or paralysing us. And that isn't actually what it does. And one of my friends, Alison Levine, she says this and it's brilliant. Fear won't kill you. Complacency will. Oh, that's brilliant. So actually what fear does is it focuses you like a laser. It raises your heart rate, there's adrenaline surgeon, and it focuses you to do the job you need to do. So, for example, if I'm flying, if I'm about to take off for a paragliding flight, if I'm not feeling scared or nervous, there's something really wrong and I need to not fly. So actually, rather than thinking of the fear of a negative thing, I think of it as like, my body's ready, this is what I'm supposed to be doing, I'm focusing, I'm supposed to have these butterflies, I'm supposed to have all this adrenaline surging, like my heart's pumping, I'm breathing faster because I'm preparing to do the thing I need to do. I also heard somebody once say that the feelings you get with fear and the feelings you get with excitement are identical, so why don't you just call it excitement? And I thought, that's brilliant. Gosh, I've never thought about it like that, but you're so right. But neither had I, and it's it's really good to just change your perspective on it and to start thinking, this is good, this is useful, I'm meant to feel like this. If I didn't, maybe I'd be throwing myself into something quite dangerous, but actually I'm I'm ready. I want to talk about some of the actual adventures that you've been on, one being the Mont Blanc climb. I think it's one thing to consider climbing up it, but another to jump off it. How do you prepare for something like that? Okay, so, I mean, it was years in the making, that trip was, and I didn't even know it was years in the making. I went to do a ski season when I was 18, and I went to the French Alps, and I was in Les Arcs, and where I was, you could see Mont Blanc, and I used to look at it and think, oh, people climb that mountain, you know, I knew it was the highest mountain in Europe, and, and I just was like, wow, but that was something other people did. And I sort of thought to myself, oh, I'd be so cool to do that, but obviously I wasn't a climber, and I don't do things like that, so I just put it in the back of my head. A few years later, I was taking my motorbike test. I sort of daydreamed about riding a motorbike in the Alps. And again, like it was kind of a pipe dream and not really something that I could see happening or was going to make happen anytime soon. And then when I learned to paraglide, with paragliding, it's a progression. So you start on slopes, gentle slopes, then you move to hills and then it gradually gets bigger. And I just, that feeling when I first learned, I remember taking off and I thought, God, I'd love to fly off a big mountain. I'd actually climbed a much higher mountain than Mont Blanc. I'd already done an 8,000 metre peak and I'd got into mountaineering. And I was chatting to a friend who's a paraglider pilot and I was saying, oh, I'd like to climb and fly off Mont Blanc. And I was talking about my motorbike and he said, Squash, why don't you put it together? Like, I'll do it with you. Anyway, he very quickly dropped out and very quickly decided he wasn't fit enough. But I was like, I want to do this. I want to ride a motorbike from England to the south of France, the foot of Mont Blanc. When I get there, I want to climb it and then I want to fly off the top. So I was like, that's what I want to do. So, of course, everyone I told you, mad, you mad, you mad. And I was like, I need somebody who I can do this with and who believes in it as much as I do and everything else. And the guy who taught me to paraglide, he at the time lived out in Annecy in France and 
He'd mentioned wanting to do it for years, but he'd never had the right team of people to do it with. So I phoned him and I said, look, this is what I want to do. Can we do it together? And he said, yes, absolutely. He said, right, we'll go in September. This is the best time to go because you weren't permitted to fly off in the summer season there. He said, so we need to go beginning of September. That means we've got three months. You need to arrive very fit. We'll do some training. We'll give ourselves a month and put the phone down. And I was like, wow, it's happening. And then I was like, oh no, like I don't have a motorbike. I don't have the right paraglider. I don't have any money. Like I don't have a video camera because I wanted to make a film about it. So I was like, I got three months. And the only thing I was kind of confident with was the physical fitness because I was like, I can just literally step outside my door and get myself fit. So that's when I was like, right, I've got to be creative here. So I went to see my local BMW dealership and I said to them that I was going to do this adventure and that the BBC were going to make a programme about it. And they were like, oh, OK, then. And then I went to see the BBC. I'd got a name of a guy through a friend who worked at the BBC down south and she'd I'd, like, I'd been badgering her, just give me a name. I got in to see this guy and I said to him, look, I'm doing this expedition. BMW are fully behind it. It's going to be fantastic. I'm definitely going to be able to do it. I mean, the chances of doing it were so slim. And they were like, hmm, right, OK. They said, look, for health and safety reasons, we can't really be seen to be having anything to do with this, but we can lend you a video camera. So for me, that was good enough. I was like, I got the BBC on board. And BMW, four days before I was due to go, said, we're going to lend you a motorbike. And then Ozone Paragliders agreed to loan me a lightweight paraglider. So I'd got all this stuff on loan. I set off, rode the bike to the mountain, got there. That was a two days. That was a relatively easy, nice part of it. And then it was actually three attempts to the summit. I don't know if you know this, but when you summit a mountain, like the chances of summiting any mountain are low because of altitude and weather. You know, to get the summit window, it's it's slim. And then if you do summit, to actually get the weather to fly off the top, I mean, it's the odds are absolutely stacked against you. It was the last and final attempt. We'd run out of time. We were at the end of the month and everyone was like, right, this is the last chance we've got. I mean, it felt like there was a lot of things against you on that, but you somehow got there. I want to talk about your partner, actually. How important was your partner on that trip? So Irwin, the guy that I climbed with, I mean, utterly, utterly vital. It wouldn't have happened without him at all. You know, I think when we do anything, we don't all have 100% of all the skills we need to do it. When you're picking a team for something, you you pick people for their strengths and you understand that they have weaknesses and things. And I didn't have enough paragliding experience to necessarily do what I was doing, but he did. And together, we had the right combination of mountaineering, paragliding skills. And I also, I didn't want to do it solo. You know, I wanted to do it with him and we built a plan together. And, and they're, you know, your teammates, when you're doing something like this, you're on the journey with them. They're everything because some days you might be strong and feeling great. And other days you might be not so strong and full of doubt. And they notice things about you and you notice things about them. And sometimes they can be your reason for getting up and carrying on. And what did you learn most about yourself on that trip? Was there anything that really surprised you other than the kind of major scale of what you achieved? Lots of little things on the way that I learned. But I think the biggest thing was, was that I could do it. I didn't really think I could do it or not. I just thought, is this actually possible? Like, it, I thought, no, nah, not really. Like, But I'm going to go for it. Like, it's going to be a great trip. But I didn't think I'd actually pull it off. If you'd have said to me beforehand, you're not only going to actually do it, but you're going to get the record recognised, I wouldn't have ever conceived all of that. And I think what it did was it taught me that I'm capable of much more than I think, which I think is a lesson we all could use. And it taught me about perseverance and keeping going and... You know, after the two failed attempts and certain days when things went wrong, I just thought, I can't do this. I just can't do it. I'm not strong enough. I'm not, you know, for all the reasons. And then actually I tried again and I did do it. And I think that taught me a lot moving forward. And especially when I went to do Everest a couple of years later, 
even though I'd climbed higher mountains, which you could argue were better preparation, it was really the Mont Blanc trip that made me dream bigger than I dared and think the impossible was possible because I'd proved it. You know, everyone told me I was crazy. Even I thought it was a little bit mad. And yet I did it. And so I think I carry that with me through life now. You just said something actually that's really interesting to me is that you were the first ever British woman to do it and you didn't realise it at the time. No, it was Erwin, my partner, that told me and I was like, no way. And he was like, yeah, and you should get this recognised. Do you think then that for you it's not about that end goal, it's not about the accolades, it's more about the motivation behind why you're doing it, the drive and the process? Yeah, I mean, it was nothing to do with the end goal. I mean, although there was social media and things back then, it wasn't quite like it is now and it, in a way... It was brilliant that there wasn't all that pressure because actually you can just go and get on with it and no one's watching you. And I wasn't doing it for anyone else. It was for me, you know, it was for the journey, it was for the experience. So you mentioned Everest. It just seems like you're on another planet. It seems like we are not supposed to be here. What kind of danger comes with that? Because, I mean, you're dealing with the altitude, the cold, the fatigue... How did that impact you? It's really difficult to describe to somebody how altitude affects you. You're basically being starved of oxygen because the air's so much thinner. So what happens is you take a step and you're literally one step and then your heart's thundering in your chest as if you've run a sprint. You've taken one step and you have to stop for about 10 or 15 breaths. And then you take another step. And that's why, you know, on summit day on Everest, it's essentially, it's not that far. It's almost a thousand vertical metres to climb. It's a kilometre, but it takes 12 hours. And that's because you move so slowly because there's so little oxygen. So there's two parts with the mountaineering. There's the fitness side and the conditioning. So you've got to get yourself prepared because your blood chemistry actually has to change to acclimatise so that your red blood cell count basically increases so that your body can use up more of the available oxygen. But also there's this thing going on where because you're so high and our bodies aren't designed to be up there, we're deteriorating. So when you go to climb a mountain, you haven't got 20 chances and weeks and weeks. You've got a limited number of chances, maybe even one, and you've got a limited number of time because actually you're deteriorating and you're not recovering. Wow. When I was on Everest, I got to base camp and I was resting because you do a rotation thing to acclimatise. So you rest at base camp when you get there. Then after a week or so, you climb up to camp one, you spend a night there, you come back down and you rest again at base camp. After you rest, you climb up to camp one, spend a night, you climb up to camp two, spend a night, you come back down, you rest again, and you get progressively higher until you're ready to go for the summit push. So each rotation takes it out of you. So it's a real balancing act to not lose too much condition and strength because you don't recover. I got to base camp and I cut my hand on one of my crampons and it didn't actually heal until after I'd left the mountain. So, I mean, I was there for weeks. That's showing you on the outside what's going on. So on the inside... So it's, it's really important to be aware of that. So you've got to balance it right. You know, there was people in my team and other teams that decided that before the summit push, you have a big, long rest at base camp. They decided to go even lower down the mountain to recover. And I decided not to because I thought, you know, if I go down lower and then have to come back up to base camp, it's going to take too much of my energy and muscle mass and because your muscles start deteriorating up there. And so I made the call not to go down, which turns out to be the right one because obviously things went well and people that did go down ended up not summiting. I'm not saying it was just because of that, but it's all calculated decisions. And then when you go for the summit push, it's all about managing yourself because it's extremely cold. So it's little techniques that you learn on other mountains and in less extreme environments that save that little bit of energy when you need it the most. So, you know, people can go and climb Everest. You could go and climb Everest tomorrow. You might succeed. It might be brilliant. And people say, well, how can you go and do that without climbing other mountains? 
mountains. And I think the thing is, if you don't get into trouble and everything goes well and you've got the right team, that's brilliant. But the other mountain experience is what will save you if things start going wrong. And it also, it teaches you how to handle yourself on mountains. So by the time I got to Everest, I knew how to keep myself warm. I knew the layering system that I needed. I knew how quickly I needed to get moving once I'd got my kit on. I knew to get dressed inside my tent. I knew to put my boots on inside the vestibule of the tent because as soon as that cold air hit me I'd start freezing I knew not to remove my inner gloves because I'd get frostbite on my fingers I knew to shovel food into me even when I didn't want to like because you feel sick it's really hard to keep food down but I knew to keep eating because I needed that food so I think the way of coping is just understanding how you work up there and to push but not too hard and just to be as prepared as you can for it That's a lot of physical preparation there, but mentally, what's going through your mind? Have you got little mantras or little things that you're telling yourself or are you just singing Belinda Carlisle? I don't know. What are you doing? (laughs) That's what I'd be doing. (laughs) You know, yeah, there was a bit of Circle in the Sands by Belinda (laughs) Great song. I think mentally it's another level. I always say that I learned how to be lonely on Everest. You know, I'm somebody that I love people and I always have people around me and that's what I choose. I'm not someone that's up for solo things. I like doing things in a team and that sort of thing. But on Everest, although I was with a team, there was so much downtime and there was so much time moving on the mountain and being alone in my head. And I think it just teaches you to rely on yourself and to trust yourself. And I think because I'd had it a bit on other mountains and expeditions, I knew I had it in me. But every day that passes on Everest... And every day that you're getting that bit higher, you're proving to yourself that you're still in it, you're still doing it and you're still achieving it. And I suppose because of trips like Mont Blanc, I could say to myself in those times when I was lonely and on my own, Squash, you you can do this. You're really strong. Like you might not look it, you might not be the biggest or have the most muscles, but, you know, even when those guys thought you couldn't, you you did it and you can do it. I've learned to really know where my limits are and trust myself and one of the mantras particularly on summit day the last 24 hours it was so tough and you know you sort of say you push yourself to your limits well on a mountain like Everest you're pushing yourself beyond your limits because this is a new zone that you've gone into so you don't know where those limits are which is why you have to be so careful that you don't push it too far because you're on the edge of as far as you can go physically mentally emotionally and I had in my head I kept imagining my mum and my family and my friends, it was their strength in their legs. And I kept thinking, borrow their strength, use their strength in your legs to take the next step. And I had a really dear friend, Lisa, who unfortunately she's passed away with cancer and she was so strong, you know, through her chemo and everything. And I climbed with her, you know, I kind of pulled on things like that. And and I always say, you climb physically first, then you climb mentally, you know, when you're finding the doors in your head and you're talking to yourself, and then that runs out as well. And on Everest, it was pure emotion. Those last few hours, I could feel the love that my friends and family had for me at home and the love that I had for them. And that was what I was surviving for. And that was what I was tuning into. And that was every single step came from that. And I know it sounds really cheesy to say it while we're at sea level having this nice chat and we're all nice and warm. But, you know, up there, so exposed, that was it. There was no room for any other thoughts. That's all I had. And it went on for hours and hours and hours. And when I saw my tent in the distance at Camp 4, when I'd come down from the summit because I didn't know I was going to get down. Like, I thought I'd pushed it too far. I thought, squash, you've overcooked it. You're going to die up here. You're not going to make it back down. And I saw the tent in the distance. You know, I'd been climbing through the night. It was now the following afternoon. And I just, I fell to my knees and I just sobbed. And I was like, you've done it. You you can do this. Whoa, squash. You're unbelievable. (laughs) 
My mind is so blown. That's this, it's amazing where you find, or where we as humans find strength. And actually we find it from other humans. Yes. And that's the thing. We all have it. We just haven't necessarily had the experiences to show ourselves we have it. I mean, I get that it's not everyone's thing to go and do that, but whatever is your thing, I think take it to the extreme because that's where the magic happens. You know, when you're pushed so far out of your comfort zone and when you're doing these things, that is where the amazing stuff happens. And we are all so strong and so capable. It's not because I'm special that I went and did that and achieved it. It's just because I'm a human being and that's what we do. You mentioned then you didn't think you'd come down the mountain. So there was a point that you thought, right, that's it. No more me. I can only imagine what, well, I can actually imagine what that would feel like. I've never been there. So did you really think that you were not going to make it? And how does that feel? How do you break past that? On any mountain, one of my mentors and the guy that I climb with, Dan, he always said to me, constantly say to yourself, can I get back down? Can I get back down? The top is only halfway there. It's all very well pushing everything you've got to get to the top. You're halfway. You've got to get back down. So that's always the question. So when you're pushing that hard, you kind of don't know, do you? So I was like constantly on the summit push. I was like, can I get back down? Can I get? I think I can. Yeah, I think I can. And then the weather deteriorated. Things got really sketchy up there and we hadn't reached the summit and I was with my Sherpa Jangbu and we were quite close and I shouted to him, even though we were close, the weather was so horrific, you couldn't hear anything. And I shouted, I've got to turn back. I don't know if I can get, I've got to turn back. And he shouted back, we're there, we're 30 metres away, we're, we're there, we just can't see it because of the horrific weather. And I thought to myself, well, if we're there, I'm not going to turn back now. Like if I've overcooked it, I've overcooked it. So I got to the summit, but... I think sometimes the advantage of being at altitude is that you're so bombed out your brains and you're pretty hypoxic at that point. There's not much oxygen. So you don't have room for millions of different thoughts. You don't think about all these things. And actually, because you're so uncomfortable and there's so much pain and so much discomfort that actually just stopping is a sweet relief. You know, on Aconcagua, the first mountain I climbed, I curled up on the side of the mountain and just was like, I'm going to sleep, guys. And I would have done. I'd have just gone into a deep sleep, gone unconscious and probably died really peacefully. One of my teammates slapped me in the face. They got food and water into me. And that's why team is so important. That's why it's so important to know yourself and to have a team with you that know you. But it's not as dramatic as you'd perhaps imagine. It's like, I'm just, I've, I'm done. Like, you're so exhausted in every way. You just, you, you want to be out of it. And whatever that looks like, you don't, you're not thinking clearly. So I didn't think, oh, this is it, this is the end. I was like, I just can't go on. I haven't got any more. I've, I've given everything I've got. I don't know how I'm going to make my legs move. And I just thought, right, it's just one step at a time. And it's literally one step and then you stop for ages and then the next step and then the next step. And that's why that whole emotional thing came in because it's such a, a deep, deep place you get to. Okay, so Mont Blanc, done. Everest, done. You're going to go to space? It was never, ever about higher, bigger, better. So, you know, when I said to you I, I'd climb bigger mountains when I did Mont Blanc, I'd climbed Chaoyu, which is one of the 8,000-metre peaks. And in some ways, when I went to do Mont Blanc, people were like, well, that's a bit of a, you know, it's nothing compared to what you've done. And I was like, but it's not about bigger and better. And with Everest... I did it when I was 30 because I thought I'm at my prime, you know, I'm at my peak fitness, I'm strong, I haven't got any responsibilities. I didn't want to keep going bigger and better, you know, and I don't know if you know about K2, it's a notoriously dangerous mountain, second highest peak in the world, much, much higher death rates than Everest and everything else, a tougher mountain altogether. And obviously I'm really interested in it. And it's not that I wouldn't like to go, but it's never, especially now I've got kids. 
you know, I don't want to go bigger and better. Like I feel so fortunate and grateful that I've done the things I've done and lived to tell the tale. And actually I get such a buzz from a bike ride, a run, you know, it doesn't have to be this big, amazing thing. And I'm not saying no more expeditions because I love them and they're fun, but actually I don't need to go more death-defying and more hardcore just to prove to the world because actually it's it's just ego that does that. And ego is so dangerous because if you chase the ego, you're never going to reach the top. There is no top. Yeah. Well, I've learned a lot about your expeditions and your sense of adventure, but I want to get to know you a little bit more in your day-to-day life. So I'd love to know a book that has informed your life. Okay. So am I allowed to? You've climbed Everest. You can do what the fuck you want. (laughs) Thank you. The first one is Shantaram. So Shantaram is like, it's a really intimidating book. It's thick. And I'd actually really like to read it. It's the first page and the first paragraph. It is so powerful. Okay. So it took me a long time and most of the world to learn what I know about love and fate and the choices we make. But the heart of it came to me in an instant while I was chained to a wall and being tortured. I realised somehow through the screamings in my mind that even in that shackled bloody helplessness, I was still free, free to hate the men who were torturing me or free to forgive them. It doesn't sound like much, I know, but in the flinch and bite of the chain, when it's all you've got, that freedom is a universe of possibility and the choice you make between hating and forgiving can become the story of your life. Wow. So I first read that and I was like, wow. Like nobody, whatever anyone does, we are all ultimately completely free. And I think that book verbalised the freedom that I feel and want to continue to feel and remind myself to feel. (sighs) Wow, that is so powerful. And that whole thing about you can forgive people, like even when they're doing things. I'm a great believer in that we are the key keeper to our own kingdom, Mm. essentially. I couldn't agree more. And what's the other book? Jilly Cooper. (laughs) (laughs) Not quite. It's called Life is Good, and it's simple words from Jake and Rocket. And it's a picture on one side and just words on the other. And there's two pages that really stand out to me. And one is, it's just a heart on one page. And on the other page, it says, take your love wherever you go. When I climbed Everest, I I had that with me. I was like, take my love wherever I go. And the other one was on here, there's a picture and it just says, the work will teach you. So, you know, when we don't know how to do something, you know, if you've got a job and you don't know how to do it, do the job to teach you how to do the job. Because often I don't do things because I don't know how to do them. And then I remind myself, I have to do it to learn how to do it. For anybody in whatever it is you're doing, whether it's work, a new sport, an adventure, whatever it is, if you don't know and you can't do it, don't let that stop you because doing it will teach you. That's actually an amazing lesson to learn because I think it's too easy to just go, oh, well, he can do that, so I'll let him do that. Okay, this might be self-explanatory, but a trip that changed your life. Probably the ski season I did when I was 18 because that took me out to the mountains. It introduced me to the friends who I first started climbing mountains with and it was just so different to anything I'd experienced. How about a human that made you who you are? Literally and in every other way, my mum. Just, yeah. Her unwavering support, her unconditional love, her non-judgment. If I can be a quarter of the mum she's been to me to Kit, you know, that would be amazing. My favourite thing is to hear about intergenerational love being passed down. I love it. I've just, I have to pick one. I mean, my my dad, my stepmum, my sister, you know, I'm very, very lucky with amazing friends and family tell me about a love that taught you the biggest lesson Uh, there's no question on that giving birth to my daughter that love that love is just the most powerful 
all-encompassing. Like, my world literally blew apart. And when I first held her, I knew what love was. And that was it. She is that. Wow. Squash, I tell you, it's been such a thrill talking to you today. Thank you. I've always been drawn to people that step out of the ordinary and want to do something bigger than them or bigger than what is expected of them. And I hope that anyone that's listening to this feels a bigger sense of adventure and a bigger trust in their own ability. Thank you. I've loved chatting to you. If you're enjoying this podcast, share, like, and please subscribe.